0: Okay. We are live. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Super Politics. We have a very special episode today. Um, We're uh, joined with your co-host, Decatur Brent. This is Steve Daly. Um, This one is actually a very special episode. If you go onto our Patreon, um, we actually are recording this one uh, with video through Zoom, so you can see how hot we are. I know you've been wondering. (laughs) 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 I've been working
1: up this stash. For yeah. a long time. For
0: yeah, <laughs> we couldn't we couldn't do video until his mustache was set. So now that it's locked <laughs> in, we're 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 live. Yeah. So um we're gonna we're gonna throw this up on on our Patreon to get the video version. Today we have a really awesome thing happening on our podcast, and we have uh a guest, an interview today with author and journalist and columnist, columnist Ellis Coase. And this individual, he's really, really awesome. I've been reading a lot about him lately. Um, as soon as we started talking to him about coming on the show. He was a columnist for 17 years for Newsweek magazine. Um, He was a chairman and editorial page editor of the New York Daily News. He was an independent radio documentary producer. He was the inaugural writer in residence for the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, He's been on, you've seen him on Dateline, ABC News, Good Morning America, and um, most importantly, for the purposes of our interview today, he is actually a really prolific writer and author of a dozen books on issues of, uh, you know, politics more or less. Um, one of the books that he that was best selling was *The Rage of a Privileged Class*, which was a novel. Um, he also wrote a book about the American Civil Liberties Union called *Democracy If We Can Keep It*. Um, and today we're going to be interviewing him about his book that just came out this week, called "The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America." And um, we're really excited about this because the the topic of today's episode um, is going to be the same topic as his book, as you might imagine, which is about the limits of free speech, if there should be any. Um, what is the value? Is the is free speech the same thing as freedom? You know, is deregulation the same thing as uh, as freedom, right? This is something that we talk about on the left all the time is, are you really free if you let corporations run everything without any kind of regulation, you know, right. and are you really free where they pretend that you have equality, but you don't have any money to compete with the corporations who actually get to dominate conversations, economic life, political life. And right. this is actually a huge topic in this book. And it, surprisingly, even though the book is titled, um, about free speech, it, goes to the core of a democracy. And um, I don't know if you have anything you wanted to add. To yeah, I there. was just
1: going to say, I think, uh, I think what I want people to keep in mind when they listen to this, I think living in America, it seems the one thing that's been overvalued more than anything in its entire you know our entire existence at least from us growing up is free speech and we hear that constantly like that's why we're better than other nations is because we can say whatever well now I think we're seeing the political ramifications of being at a crossroads with that so I do think it's it's something to keep in mind about how our values are changing and because of that what can we do to to fix our our free speech problem and we're going to get into a lot of that today in this episode but
0: Yeah. And, and, and we're really excited for this interview. Um, We're going to bring him on here in just a moment. Um, But, you know, we just wanted to let you know how excited we are to have him on. Um, He's been on the scene for a long time, way before us, you know, talking about politics and uh, it's just going to be great to, to pick his brain about these things, hold his feet to the fire a little bit about some of his ideas, but honestly, I think he's coming from a really good place and he just wants to see, you know, what, you know, one of the things he talks about is like, what, Free speech, just for the sake of free speech, maybe there's value to that. But isn't there also a question, like, isn't free speech also supposed to be in service of something greater, right? Don't we believe in free speech for a reason? Isn't that reason because we believe right. that through free speech, we will come to the right answers, right? right. And he actually pushes back on some of those ideas. And as we say, as long as we're talking about free speech in the sense of a completely deregulated, you know, political environment that you can, that the person with the most money gets to say what they want and no one else does, then, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we're not actually getting to the right answers. And maybe um, there is a way to, con- to regulate the uh, political right. environment. In well, a I, think,
1: I think too, a, a good thing that, that he points out that I'm sure we'll get into too is, you know, free speech is great when we assume that the truth wins. And we are now living in a post-truth era. So what does free speech mean because of that?
0: Absolutely. And one other thing, like, hopefully we get a a chance that the interview is a half an hour. So hopefully we get a chance to talk to him about this. But um, just like, you know, you've heard you've probably heard buzzing around on the internet a little bit that the freedom index, I think it was no longer rates us a full on democracy. And they now say we're a flawed democracy. And I thought, yeah, (laughs) hooray. Of course, I'm talking about the United States for those listening outside of our country. Um, I think that that's now that I've read this book, he talks so much about like the ways that the public's opinion doesn't actually really matter at all, or that actually a very small minority of the country controls the rest. And it's not just about money. There's structural reasons why that are really fascinating that actually really predate this whole like disastrous citizens United decision that made corporations people and allowed them to spend whatever they want on elections. There's actually been structural problems with the way we have even called ourselves a democracy from the very beginning that actually kind of makes it laughable, that we call ourselves a democracy the idea that like that a very small portion of our country actually runs everything is is really, uh, you know, upsetting. So I'm it's, excited. It's, it's a sad myth. <laughs> it, it's a sad myth. I think that, you know, it's one of those ideas where like they they tell us it's a democracy, although the Republicans will be the first to be like, it's not a democracy. It's a democratic right. republic, which right. um, at least one constitutional scholar says those are synonyms. Like that's a silly thing to say. But right. um, but it's, it's telling that they say that because it actually shows that the people on the right really aren't interested in democracy. And neither were the founders. And that's a big part portion of this book where they talk about the way the founders designed the way we pick a president the way votes have to be balanced out by a senate that does not represent the majority you know it's a whole it's a really fascinating topic and the way they from the start never designed us to be a democracy not a true one and uh and so i'm really excited to talk to him about that um, because i don't think it would be a mystery to anyone in this call that decatur and i both are uh down with real democracy and not this sham that we have been uh, living through for a long time. Definitely. So, Despite what I get on
1: these, you know, political compass-esque tests.
0: <laughs> yeah, we took, a, we took a few tests. Uh, I came back democratic socialist as, as no one would be surprised.
1: But, I came back Kim Jong-un apparently.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 He's kidding. He's kidding. Uh, but, uh, but anyhow. Um, all right. So we're going to bring him on in just a minute here. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Um, but, but stay tight and this will be a good interview. Hello. Hello, How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Hey. Thanks so much for uh, coming on our
2: show. Oh, my pleasure. Hey,
0: how's it going? We both uh, really, really enjoyed your book. Um, it was really Wonderful. awesome. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it, it's super, super timely. This is a really important conversation that people yeah. need to be having right now. Um,
1: it was eye opening in some positive ways and eye opening in some better go buy some land
2: somewhere else ways. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hopefully not too depressing, but yeah. No, no, definitely Very, not. very no, it, strange it, times.
0: <laughs> it, it's, it's definitely a page turner. Um, you can tell that you've been a writer for a very long time. Um, very easy to read, um, really informative. Uh, but we were telling our audience before you came on a little bit about some of the really interesting topics you brought up about how, you know, the dichotomy between, well, it doesn't have to be a dichotomy, but the relationship between kind of social interests and free speech and how those aren't actually always going together. And um, also, you know, that that's fascinating to me. And then another thing that really, really got my wheels turning is this idea. I can say that I probably was one of those more like ACLU type of like free speech extremists that you mentioned, like the people who represented um, in the Charlottesville rally, like I might have agreed with their decision to do that before I read your book. And now I'm not so sure. Um, So that's probably a great place to start. You talked, you you talked about the Charlottesville rally. And, um, and of course, for our audience that you should know this already. But if you don't, that was the neo Nazis and the white supremacists had held a rally there. And it turned the ACLU defended their decision to do that. And, and then it turned out violent and three people died. Um, And so that tees up the question perfectly is, is this kind of free speech extremism, actually what we want? Is this good?
2: I think Steve you actually have to sort of separate the question into into a few different questions because the the ACLU uh, the, the Virginia chapter which defended um, that um, the Nazis or, or the defend what was it called unite the right
0: unite the right, right rally right um
2: in in that case actually got involved um because they have had they have, the ACLU has a long history of defending Nazis, KKK people, other extremists from the right and from the left, but certainly from the right. And it goes back to the beginning. I mean, one of the earlier um, documents that was produced by the ACLU was a, a pamphlet, basically asking why do we defend Nazis as we sort of move towards uh, World War II. Uh, and the question they gave then is a question that they've consistently given. And, and it came up again in 1978, you know, when there was the March in Skokie, which was neo-Nazis, And Skokie is a suburb of Chicago, which uh, happened to, at the time, have a lot of um, Holocaust survivors living there. And so people were up in arms. So how in the world can you defend these Nazis? And the answer they gave then, which they, to some extent, will still give, you know, is that, you know, we're defending against an ordinance that um, Skokie passed, which would make it impossible for Nazis to march. But the way that they structured this ordinance is 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 the same way that people in selma Alabama, want to put together ordinances that will make it impossible for civil rights people to march uh, and we can't defend their right to speech in selma without defending the right of nazis to speak here uh, that that was the sort of rationale and they sailed along easily and happily with that rationale until charlottesville a couple of years ago you know and what happened then was that um, there was this question came up and because it had been sort of a routine question for the ACLU uh, they said well of course you know we'll defend these people and then as you say things went to hell I mean the the March never happened actually the Skokie March never happened either but that's a, for a whole other set of reasons um, but there was so much violence you know that uh, that the March didn't happen but proceeding to that they got a court decision because originally what the city of Charlottesville wanted to do was to move that march. They said, okay, we respect your right to march, um, but we don't think you ought to have it in the center of town in this particular park. Uh, we you ought to have it someplace where where police can be more in control of things, where it's, where it's less likely to cause something disruptive. And the ACLU position was sort of a knee jerk Reaction. Well, no, you're 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 making this decision because of the content of the speech. So we still have to defend these people, and they defended them. They got a ruling that said that they were perfectly justified in keeping their original plans to have the march basically at this park um, that was no- normally that had been Robert E. Lee Park. They were renaming it to Emancipation Park. There was a, the, the question of a statue. All of that was why they wanted to have it in that park. You know, and they said, okay, uh, we're not gonna you, you can you we're gonna have this thing in the park, and the city said. Fine, you can have a thing in the park. Um, the other march comes up. Uh, they show up as a, a Virginia's uh, an open carry state. Uh, a lot of people are armed. A lot of people are you know looking for trouble, um, and so things get violent even before the march is supposed to start. So the police basically called it off all the march for safety reasons. Um, as you mentioned, two things happen. You know, in 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 Sioux, you know, one is that. Two policemen you know, who were, helico- who were in, a hel- in a helicopter or sort of monitoring the situation, their plane crashes; those two die. And uh, then a guy who was a um, Nazi sympathizer, who apparently helped um, Adolf Hitler as a personal hero, takes a car and plunges it into a crowd, and one woman is killed, uh, and and uh, num- many other people are injured. And so there- so there is this soul searching that goes on within the ACLU. And there are differences now in the ACLU now and the ACLU back in 1978. Uh, Back in 1978, it did not have a racial justice unit. It did not have any significant number of black employees or my other minority employees. Um, They did not have a president uh, who seemed to be encouraging, and at least to some people, seem to be encouraging hate speech. Uh, So it's a very different situation. So even internally, it was rocked. Uh, And there are some people internally arguing um, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be defending people like this. There are other people on the outside saying, "Wait a minute! This is what we've always done." Of course, we have to defend people like this. There were, there were lots of discussions held back and forth. You know, the, the part of the staff wrote a letter uh, saying we feel betrayed by yeah, by by what the uh, ACLU did, and we feel even more betrayed by the way they responded to the questions, pretending as there as if there's no issue here. There is an issue here, uh, and they ultimately decided that okay you know we're going to have a different kind of way of choosing who we defend but we're not going to back away from the issue we're going to basically give people more vetting and we're and we're not going to defend people who are carrying guns yeah uh so it was it was a very difficult issue for them and i went into that into some detail just to sort of you know walk you through some of the thinking that went back and forth it was actually a a black uh, attorney a female attorney uh, who was the uh, legal director of, in Virginia at that time, and part of the decision to defend you know, this hate group you know, was made by her uh, and and for her, the issue was very personal and very painful um, and she said that you know, because of this philosophy that basically they're defending the right to speech not the, the speech, not the content of the speech, um, they needed to defend it. Um, and so now as I said they, these cases are supposed to get a little bit more vetting. they haven't actually changed their policy other than to uh, not allow people with weapons you know uh, if they are going to defend you. So all that to say that part of I think what has happened in the years since then is there was a much more visible uh, racial justice movement you know, that's, that's sort of uh, emerged and become part of a lot of these progressive movements And part of that, set of discussions they had was like, we have two sets of values here. We have a, we have a set of values where we value inclusion, where we value um, people who are of color or different religions, and, and but we also value very much uh, free speech. And I think that's sort of where the, where the question is left. I mean, if you're asking me where I come down to that issue, um, I come down to the issue of saying you have to make these decisions on a case-by-case basis. Um, I, I think there are circumstances under which they may still defend Nazis, you know, depending upon what the, I, I don't think this particular case was a good case. I I, I I don't I don't think that they necessarily should have gone to the wall to defend these people's right to have a march in this particular um, park as opposed to another park. They were they were gonna be allowed to march. Uh, I don't think it was as important of issue as some people at the ACLU thought it was. Uh, but I can certainly conceive of a, of a situation where if you have something more similar to what happened um, in Skokie and the city is passing ordinances that can affect any number of groups that they would take take a a, a position that acknowledges that. Or I can also see a situation where if they are adopting a policy that can be broadly applied, um, and that is um, if if another kind of set of city fathers get in there and they say, okay, uh, you know, we're not going to let you uh, know the the pro female group or the pre pro feminist group march. We're not going because we have this law that was originally constructed, yeah, to um, deal with Nazis. So I don't think it's I don't think it's a simple issue, um, and I think that uh, it's, it's not going to become a simple issue. But I think what what has become clear is that these other considerations have to be taken into account, uh, and you can't just say that. Um, because that, that speech is speech and therefore it's protected because the, the clear fact of the matter is there's never been a time in, in, in American history when all speech was protected. Um, speech right. has always had to, uh-huh. to to certain things you know and and going back even before um, the Chaplinsky decision you know about fighting words I mean there you know there were a number of decisions which basically articulated this idea if, these, if whatever this speech is was going to lead to imminent violence, and then it's not permitted. Um, that's still a fact. You know. Uh, and, and, and so speech was never just speech, and we can say anything you want. Um, I mean, the fighting with this doctrine has pretty much fallen into <laughs> use. But the, but, but the idea, though, know, that you um, have, whether it's child pornography or some other thing, now that we just decided so awful that uh, it shouldn't be dealt with uh, or, or shouldn't be permitted uh, is in play. But I think the larger issue in a, in a sense um, is when you get to that kind of speech is not so much what the government is doing and, and, and laws about whether speech should be uh, allowed of a certain sort uh, in a situation analogous to Charlottesville it's a lot of it is what's happening on the internet, what's happening you know, in these sort of right. venues. Uh, and to yeah. what extent yeah. they should be, um, you know, um, inhibited in making certain types of speech. And that's not so much a government issue as this is a societal issue. Uh, and, and the issue of uh, the world well, to what extent we expect um, these institutions to have policies and rules which allow for civil discourse as opposed to encourage um people to go to Christ church and start shooting people. You know, or, uh, you know right, what right, yeah. right. to do. Well, I or think South that's Carolina,
1: a, I think that's kind of interesting too because I know you you kind of you point something out which I think was really helpful in the book of how, you know, is like how free speech is being looked at and how kind of American values are changing where you know, we're not, you know, as I guess terrible in a lot of ways. We care more about dignity and all these things that that's changing. I definitely think we're seeing that with, you know, our generation and the generation below Steve and I too. And you kind of talk about the issue of free speech on college campuses. And I was curious kind of what your thoughts are of how much of that's blown out of proportion.
2: Uh, Oh, I think as I I made pretty clear, I think a lot of it's blown out of proportion. and I think a lot of it's self-correcting. I mean, it, it was it was very interesting um, to watch the Republican convention this year. I, I didn't—I lost count of how many speakers there were, but at least eight speakers, uh, devoted a, a large part of their time, you know, to how they're the party of free speech now. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. found rather interesting. I mean, given that this very publicized event, where um, our president violently shut down a speech at Lafayette Park. Um,
0: right, I, right. In, in order for
2: or, or I should say a, a speech event at the at, at, you know, order to walk through there with a bible so he could exercise his free speech right you know to get a picture of a bible in front of a church um, upside and,
1: down mind you,
2: up, you know, upside <laughs> down yeah you know. uh, and, and, and also you know the, the, the same president who routinely conflates uh, any kind of protest that is from the left with violence, you know, and automatically these are things that ought to be put down. The cops and and maybe the feds ought to come in and arrest these people and and knock them in the heads. You know, so it's so so it's hard to um and, and then so but but it's hard to sort of square that with this big argument that they're really for free speech, and then going back even to the stance on free speech in college campuses. I mean, the president a couple of years ago issued an executive order uh, basically saying that if colleges didn't respect free speech, they're going to be denied federal funding and then and then, uh, then essentially ordering them to do what most colleges are already doing. Um, uh, and, and what was interesting about that is that the, the trigger for that was um, a Milo Yiannopoulos uh, event uh, at University of California, Berkeley, uh, which became this event that cost the university millions of dollars because of security. Uh, it became violent because people from outside the community came in and decided to disrupt it. Uh, there were explosions that went on uh, uh, and fires that broke out on campus as a result of this. Uh, and then Milo Yiannopoulos who had been given um, the largest venue on campus to speak is screaming about how his free speech rights are being, are being denied. Uh, it was clearly a stunt um uh, and Ann Coulter has engaged in much the same thing. I mean she sets up a situation where she sort of um baits people into challenging her right to speak and then uses this uh to generate even more publicity and and and, and no one seriously thinks that ann Coulter's right to speak is uh, <laughs> being infringed upon you know right. so it so it becomes this this um sort of fantastical issue that they make because I have yet to hear. Um, the far right saying that, well, okay, so why don't they let uh, these progressive and pro-abortion speakers speak on these colleges that don't like that? And and, and these, and, you know, they they, right. you know, they you know they don't, they don't do that. Right. <laughs> uh, this it, is for a very specific set of of, uh, of of ideas that they want speech protection, um, and so that's I, I think just a little bit silly. But but sure, um, I think there are you know instances where on college campuses where they shut down things that I don't think they should have shut down um, and where they have violated people's um, ability to communicate the message, which I don't think is all necessarily all that helpful either. Um, but I, but I, but it's, it's- also
1: like twenty-year-olds, also a lot of times yeah. identifying themselves for the first time, and figuring out the world. So, right, you know. exactly.
2: Uh, and a lot of colleges, as you as you know, I mean, the University of Chicago a, a few years ago articulated a very strong statement against this sort of stuff. Uh, some colleges signed on to it, you know, some didn't. But I, I think that. It, you know, if if we're looking at where the dangerous situation is in terms of speech in America, it's not college campuses. Uh, but yes, I mean, there are there are there are instances instances that we can point to, and and there are events we can point to where people on the left have gone, you know, further than they should have been, uh, and they should have and and acting things have happened that shouldn't have happened. Yes, that's absolutely that's absolutely true.
0: When you um... We actually did an episode not too long ago covering these guys who call themselves the intellectual dark web. And they're just kind of, most of them are right wingers on the internet who are complaining that, you know, their their free speech rights are being trampled on because they don't want to be politically correct and people are trying to make them be. And of course they have millions of subscribers and it's silly to complain about, uh, about that because they're doing fine. But what I think is what was so great about, uh, how you kind of teed up this whole conversation in your book is the ability to just open your mouth and speak doesn't really mean a lot unless people hear you. And to have people hear you kind of requires that you have some power and money to get that to happen. And so this conflation of like deregulation versus actual freedom, I don't think after reading your book, I, I feel kind of confident to say like, it's not the same thing just to say if we, if we just the government shouldn't touch speech at all, or, you know, Facebook shouldn't have any policies on speech. Well, that's not a neutral decision. That actually means that your position is that the most powerful people should be the ones who get to speak the most.
2: And that's well, kind of- especially the- when that's backed by, you know, the Supreme Court decision, I mean, so Citizens exactly. Union, FEC, um, which, which overturned, you know, the fine Feingold, um, Finance reform law, uh, and basically allows all of this money you know, to flow into political speech and 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 in direct support of candidates, and the I think one of the more eloquent uh, objections to that was raised by Stevens in his dissent. I mean, this whole idea he you know, he pointed out of of looking at corporations as people is is ridiculous in the way that it was articulated. Uh, we. You know, institutions that are corporations don't vote. They don't die. It's not even clear often who they're speaking for. Uh, and so they whatever rights they have and they have considerable sets of rights. Uh, you know, they're not exactly equivalent to the rights that you and I have as, right. as, as citizens and as individuals. Um, and yet that's now the law of the land. And we and we certainly know that um, the ability to advertise heavily uh, to get a message out there has a huge impact on the political process. Uh, and, and so you're given one set of players much more power than you're given the others uh, when you allow that to happen. And, and I think that that's part of, of what's happened with speech in our society. It, it's that people who are effectively without finances, without power, don't have much speech um, because no one listens to them, and 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 um, a, a, I guess a, a more abstract point, you know, is that um, the, the the scholarship around speech um, and the way we evolved into our current view of speech has a lot to do with events that took place and the court decisions that were made, you know, after World War II. Uh, and and so this whole idea articulated probably um, most eloquently by uh, Brandeis uh, of the purpose behind free speech. You know, the, this idea that bad ideas um, give way to good ideas, um, that that uh, the shining light of truth will ultimately outshine, you know. Lies that the way to a more perfect union, the way to a more perfect society, is through the vigorous exercise of free speech. Um, that sounds maybe a little bit naive now, but that was right. the, the you know the intellectual framework under which our way of thinking about free speech evolved. And so I don't I don't think you can separate that you know from our current reality where we are discovering uh, again that well this thing about um, the blinding light of of uh, truth uh, doesn 't necessarily seem to be working all that well uh, <laughs> yeah no it 's you... just not
0: it's not yeah, yeah no that's that's very easily concluded, especially when you know the what, what's being drowned the truth is being drowned out by money, and money being, is always backed by an agenda right and well, so, it 's being drowned out
2: by money it's also being drowned out by just naked power i mean we've we 've never right. had. The situation that we have now uh, in our country, you yeah, I mean, we, we had McCarthyism, of course, right. Um, right. but McCarthy was a junior senator uh, with a with a fairly limited set of powers. I mean, he didn't he didn't control the Justice Department. He didn't control the executive branch of government. He right. couldn't really order anybody to do anything except for maybe you to appear before his um, sub subcommittee uh, to be questioned. He, he could subpoena you, and he could and he could denounce you publicly, but he didn't have real power. Uh we have a president with real power uh who who which who would be fine if he spoke the truth um but whose agenda is a mishmash of things a huge part of which is untruthful and propaganda you know and um I think the Washington Post has some now over twenty thousand falsehoods uh that oh yeah and 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 counting you know um and so. And and it it's it's different than again than you or I speaking. And it's not just money. Uh it's that he's the head of the of the government. So his words mean something. Uh and they have to be listened to and they have to and and, and it creates a dilemma, not just for ordinary citizens who are trying to figure out what to do, um, and say the COVID in the age of COVID, uh, it creates a dilemma for the media. Um I mean, I, I've spent my entire career, one way or another, attached to the press. Um, and I came up with a set of values, which, which is that we try to be objective, we, we or at least as objective as is humanly possible, that we try to give both sides of every issue. Um, and I think we saw um, the beginnings of how that can really make mischief uh, during right. the coverage of the, uh, the Clinton-Trump um, race, originally. Um, you had a certain equivalency that was drawn mm-hmm. between a Clinton's tendency to shade the truth a bit at times and uh, Trump's tendency to outright make up stuff, you know. Uh, and it became, oh, they're yeah. both dishonest. You know, it's yeah. kind of they're kind of the same, right? Yeah. Uh, and not quite, you know. It's it's a it's a different level. And and I think also if you go back. To the um, 2004 race, uh, where we had John uh, Kerry uh, running against George Bush, you know, um, we had the political operators realize a huge truth for them, which was that you could take something that was factually true and make it just the opposite of what it was. You had a guy who had won, you know, what the Bronze Star, who, who, was, a, who was a war hero. Uh, and you make him into something approaching, uh, approximating a war criminal and a coward and a liar and and all these other things which are, and you you make a film about that, you make an advertisement about that, you you write a book about that. Uh, And it's totally made up nonsense, but it has a huge impact. And the truth doesn't cut into that um, because he's not as skilled as the propaganda makers are at getting their message across. And so what I think the insight that the current president took from that, is that, and also from his own actions, is that you can make lies work for you very well, uh, even if the truth is accessible, uh, because you can drown out the truth. You know? and, and his test run for that was um, what got him into politics, I think, originally, which was the birthism, the birthism lie about right. Obama not being a citizen and somehow having tricked his way into office, uh, even though he was from Kenya. Uh, and, his, and and Trump said, I'm gonna send you know, investigators out to um, Hawaii, and we're going to get the truth of whether there's a birth certificate. I'm going to say, well, he never sent investiga- investigators anywhere, anywhere. Never, he was interested in the truth. It was all one big lie. And, and he has realized you can run a presidency on that. Uh, mm-hmm. Even when you have videotape of, of you saying something else, You accuse it of being fake news. You're accusing the media of spinning things. You accuse um, it of being somehow manufactured even when it clearly is not. Um, That's a powerful insight, Um, but it's also a powerful refutation of the ability of truth uh, to triumph necessarily. It it doesn't, and and it raises a question about how we have a a political process that, that is more transparent. Um, And that is more focused on things that are real as opposed to to spin.
0: Right. You talked, can you talk a little bit about the way I, and I do believe I remember reading this a bit in your book about the way that um, on social media and on the internet, like it's, it's not about, I think it's the same way in the media as well in general. It's just, it's not about, you know, whether or not it's true or an interesting piece of information, what really, what really takes the platform is just the most outrageous things that people say.
2: Right, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting um, because they have um, um, you know, a- algorithms, which which look at things that are getting lots of views. And of course the things that get, get lots of views are things that people have a, a intense emotional response to and things that people have intense emotional response to are not necessarily the most rational things in the world. Uh, I mean, I mean, on one side, you know, they're cute puppies and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, but on the other side, you know, is, is people talking about pedophile rings that are being run by major politicians and, 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 you know, and stuff like that. Um, and I think we as a society are trying to grapple with that, grapple with that. I mean, I'm, um, as I said, I come out of print for the most part, even though I've done other media, you know, and, um. I remember very distinctly, I was at Newsweek at the time, when all of a sudden you there, you know, and, and, and things went online, you know, and, and all of a sudden uh, you get this phenomenon where people are rating your stories. Uh, and you're going, what in the hell is this? Uh, but yeah, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, there's this, this, there's this new metric is not really right. Good. The story is accurate. Uh, it's not whether it's important. It's how popular this story is. You know, being viewed right. by various people, uh, and that shifts. That changes things, and it changes the the way some journalists think about things. But it definitely changes what happens you know, online when the whole game is about getting views, and the whole game is about things that, or, or at least a lot of the game, uh, is about things that that grab eyeballs. So you so you have a lot of extremist stuff. Um, because that's one that's a way to make money. Um, but it, but it, but you also have a lot of extremist stuff Um, because that's what a particular group of people are attracted to Um, right. and they and, and and they and they on the internet find communities where that's fostered Um, and so you you have one example after another you can't necessarily blame the internet for someone say like Dylan roof who goes to south carolina and shoots up a church, but he finally, but he suddenly, but he certainly found a very supportive community on the internet, uh, which encouraged him, you know, to do something like that, uh, and help to enable him to do something like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's the terrifying part that we're all a bit afraid of QAnon as we see them running races. And we can talk about money all day. But I mean, that's naked power right there. As Trump gives them the A-OK. And then they're, <laughs> they're winning, you know, congressional districts primaries, at least so.
2: Right. right. Uh, I mean, and, and, we, and we saw this coming. I mean, the, uh, the fellow who showed up in Washington, D.C. Yeah, with um, yeah. uh, a gun, you know, to stop Hillary Clinton from kidnapping children for this you know this so-called ring you know i mean that's um there are a lot of people who are very susceptible to this stuff and other people who, who for a variety of reasons a psychologists would understand better than i do uh want to believe this stuff uh and the um the way the internet is run really appeals to them but let me go back to something that i think we mentioned earlier which, which is the Zuckerberg approach, you know, to um, political lying, I think it's problematical um, because I'm not for government censorship of the internet. I I think that, you know, is problematic on on any number of levels. But I think there ought to be some some rules of decency uh, about what goes out there. And and the idea that um, blatant, extremely blatant lies are not guarded against somehow right um, but just permitted strikes me as absurd and 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 um i mean I'm i mean, I write about this in the book a bit because it just really i thought was infuriating i mean the idea you know that you're going to defend um a presidential candidate or another candidate uh totally making up things about somebody else um because this is in the great tradition of freedom of of the press uh, and freedom of speech, as articulated by uh, Sullivan v. New York Times. Wait a minute, uh, right, right. Yeah, Sullivan v. New York <clears throat> Times was a very was, was not was not um, the same as the Zuckerberg taking. I mean, in, in his great speech where he defended this, he talked about well, you know, our tradition goes back to this because in in Sullivan you had this case where. Uh, There was misinformation that was handed out. And so now we have this case of misinformation. So it's all the same, uh, essentially, was his point. Um, If you understand history at all, you know there are half a dozen reasons reasons why it's not at all the same. Um, But the Sullivan case revolved around a situation in Alabama where uh, the movement that was led by Martin Luther King was under fierce attack by elected officials and appointed officials, including the police chief, the governor, and everyone on down. Um, the a group of, of ministers who were supportive of Martin Luther King took out an advertisement in the New York Times, trying to garner support for their movement um, in which they, uh, and they did their attempt to document what had happened to them, you know, the being blocked from entering certain places, the bombings that had taken place, the arrests that had taken place, the harassment that had taken place, you know, et cetera. Uh, and in documenting that, they had some errors. They had the wrong number for the number of times he had been arrested, for instance. It wasn't eight times, it was seven times. You know, uh, you know small things. Yeah, like that. right. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> what we and, call immaterial mistakes. Like, exactly. it doesn't matter. Come on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, uh, but that was what the officials from Alabama jumped on. And they're saying, you know, this is libel, Uh And they got these <laughs> Uh, in the Alabama state courts, uh, of course, uh, and then it ends up before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court, you know, obviously and wisely says, wait a minute, this is nonsense. Uh, and and, and right. it also had these poor ministers, you know, whose property had been attached for these huge settlements. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, and and so the uh, the Supreme Court basically says, no, you need to have actual malice. You need to actually have you know, lies that you meant to be lies, and 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 there's a and there's another standard here, particularly for public figures going on. Uh, and so for um, Zuckerberg to try to compare the civil rights workers of the South to Donald Trump and his political advertising is I just find offensive on so many levels. <laughs> Uh, and and, right. and, it's, and it's not misinformation that they were spreading, and it, those were innocent errors. It's not it's not innocent errors. You know when Trump uh, denounces people for things that he knows they didn't do. That's not an innocent error.
0: Right. He's making me ter- And and the way I think about it a little bit, just as an analogy for people who, you know really think like, I just don't think that any powerful institution should be regulating speech at all. Well, of course you don't believe that. Or you would think that it would be okay for me to post an ad on Facebook that, you know, I'm false advertising some product and I defraud people or I it's okay to pretend to be some prince from Africa and wire me a bunch of money. Like these are all speech but it's also a lie and I'm, trying, and I'm using that lie to try to get you to make a really horrible mistake for your life. And I think anyone who believes in democracy thinks that how we exercise our vote is also a really important decision. And so the, the idea that you can just go on social media and lie and no one should do anything about that. And how can we even conceive of a world where we would regulate that kind of speech? To me, just kind of, it's naive. Of course we should regulate that, it's, it's lies. And you know. Right. Um, now so, well, like you also- mentioned,
2: go ahead, sorry. Yeah, but, what, but what it also reflects, Steve, is, is, is a huge misunderstanding about what speech is protected and what speech is not protected. Right. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, there is this idea out there that free speech means you can pretty much say anything uh, and you're right. protected in saying that and in, in, in the environment. Uh, the free speech guarantee was very specific in the sense that it barred Congress and by implication the federal government um from limiting your speech in certain ways. And and that came for a very simple reason. I mean, you know, the United the, what became the United States was getting out from under uh, the English uh, and and right. a and, and a king, you know, who could do all kinds of things to people. They didn't want to repeat that mistake. Um, and so they had this Bill of Rights and, and they built that in. Um, but as I'm sure you'd know, but a lot of your listeners I'm sure don't uh, originally the Bill of Rights didn't even apply to the states. Uh that mm-hmm. took a whole other process for that to happen. That didn't happen until the until 1925. You know, yep. so so the the idea that people sort of have that well the founders meant people to be able to just say anything whenever they wanted to, uh, even if it's hateful, even if it's if it's, even if it's harmful. Uh wait a minute, that's not ever how free speech has been um um Determined in our country, and even if you take what I—the point that I argue is true—which is that we weren't very serious about the First Amendment until the twentieth century. Uh, Even if you accept that as true, um, which I think is, um, once we began to accept the First Amendment, we still had um, restrictions on it. I mean, we—you know—into the forties, we had people still being sent to prison. Uh, and uh, con- being um, convicted for being communist, for God's sake! Right? right, <laughs> yeah, we, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So well, and then, then sorry, just just to say, I mean, that is, we see in. that kind of rhetoric from, from Trump and the supporters now. I mean, Joe Biden is considered a Marxist to, to Donald Trump, which is, exactly. I mean, outlandish. <laughs> and and it, it does seem like you know, if we're not careful, it's kind of a new era of McCarthyism.
2: Well, it's a language of polarization, and Trump uh, is among many people who have become sort of expert in that. Um, right. I mean, I don't. I mean, Trump knows very well that um, Biden is not a Marxist. I don't even know right. what, what Marxism means.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't <laughs> think he, I would agree with that. Yeah,
2: yeah. But he knows that it's something that people were not supposed to like, and he knows that, and he knows <laughs> that, that you are some kind of radical. And so he's trying to portray right. himself in a certain way. And so he's tossing words around. And, and, and obviously, I mean, that word has a history and the whole um, um, Palmer Raids, part of our history, you know, uh, where we uh, uh, lock up people because of they belong they to certain parties and they believe certain things. Or, or, or going back to World War I, we locked up people because they had the nerve to speak out against the war or, in one bizarre case that I write about, mm-hmm. I find fascinating, um, they locked up a guy because he made a, what he thought was a patriotic movie about the American Revolution and called it the spirit of 76 and thought he was doing something that was supportive of the war effort. But in doing that, you know, he criticized um, the English, who were now our ally. You can, oh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And you
2: yeah. Can, can criticize them. So, boom, he gets a 10 year sentence, uh, you know, which happily for him was commuted, but his career never went anywhere. You know, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and, and so, 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 so this naive notion that they are violating, you know, is, is just not historically accurate, uh, that, you know, free that, that these, uh, that their rights are being trampled in a way that, you know, were never, never happened before. You know, people's rights have always been subject to other considerations and including, including the right of speech. Uh, and and when you add that to the fact that we're still in the process of, working through what we really believe uh, about the Bill of Rights and about free speech, uh, and that working through that in an environment in which many, many Americans are extremely ignorant about what any of that means, although they know that they support it. Uh, And so you have this, this sort of interesting dichotomy where you have roughly 90% or 91%, depending on the poll, of Americans you know, who support you know, the free speech, support spe- uh, of you know, free press. But you also have 39% saying that uh, the president ought to have the power to shut down the New York Times and to shut down CNN and to shut down other broadcasters who are doing things that are not right. Uh, and clearly, you can't believe both things at the same time and, and, and be a logical person.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Decatur, uh, Brent, did you have any uh, last questions? Because we've gone way over the time that we planned on and I, 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 I don't want to yeah. take any more of your time. So,
1: Yeah, I don't wanna, yeah we don't want to take up too much. I just do have a question, kind of, if you have any thoughts on how to get through to kind of this anti-PC culture mob of people who are just voting basically off the fact that Donald Trump is a free speech candidate, in their, in their eyes. And, you know, Joe Biden is the censors or everyone on the left is a censorship, you know, fiend or something like that. If you have any advice on trying to, how to get, how we can talk to these people in the anti-PC world.
2: Well, I think you, you talk to them with courtesy and respect, you know, and, and maybe, you know, 5% of them will listen to you.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, that's true.
2: But, but I, but I think the reality is we are just highly, highly polarized, you know, and when we have so many buttons that get They get touched. And and the minute you say something um, to someone that's critical of someone that they admire and adore, um, they're going to shut you out. They're going to shut you down. And and I think that's just a a tragedy of our society right now. Um, And and when we're polarized both politically and racially the way that we are, uh, it makes it very difficult to have meaningful discussions about some of the most important issues that we are facing. Because you're because you're met not with a reasonable discussion or not even with a with a reasonable argument when you point out the flaws in this way of thinking. You're met a, you're met instead with accusations and slogans and and maybe curse right. words, you know, or yeah. uh, right. on Christmas. It, it, <laughs> it, and so and so and, and so that <clears throat> excuse me. So so there's so there's not an, an, a discussion that gets you there.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, um, everybody, we got we both really enjoyed the book. I have it yes. here. Um, there's also an audiobook version that uh I really uh, I actually got that too because I, I like audiobooks. So I uh it's a really good narrator. His name's Corey Jackson, he has a great voice. Um so you know, either way, we encourage everybody to check it out. And we're just so grateful you took the time to talk to us today. Um, this is such an important topic. Um, just goes really to the core of our democracy and it kind of puts everything else um, it's almost like whatever issue you care about, you know, good luck getting that passed or making that the law or making that the reality in our society. If we don't handle first, you know, our democracy, what about how does free speech work? How does, how do we actually make that? there's a lot that we didn't even get a chance to get into about, you know, how our government, you know, the Senate only represents 18% of the population, you know, all these problems that we have, we're going to talk about it more after we let you go. But, um, you know, again, this is, this is such an important topic, no matter what issues you're most passionate about, whether it be environment, the environment, or, you know, progressive values or anything like that. So again, just thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show. Um, and uh, we really are grateful you wrote this book and came on.
2: Well, thank, thank you. you. I, mean, I enjoyed it. So thanks for taking the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Well, have a great afternoon. Thanks.
2: Thank you. You take good care.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Bye. Wow. Okay. All so, right. So, I think the important
1: thing to take away from everything we just learned is we are great interviewers <laughs>
0: <laughs> Decatur's down on himself for not talking more, and I agree with him he's the worst but uh I think that this was a really good conversation what you know there's obviously you know only a forty five minute interview um, there's only so much you can talk about but what was really interesting like what really was interesting to me about this book was two things: one is this idea that like you hear a lot of people talking about on the left, it's like when the right talks about freedom, they're not actually talking about freedom for the individual. They're talking about creating a world that's so deregulated that someone else fills the power vacuum, right? So like mm-hmm. in the context of economics, it's we don't want to create a cooperative economy at all. We just want to have this economy that the government just completely supports corporations and does nothing to, you know, tax anybody, lower taxes, blah, blah, blah. They just want to get rid of regulation, everything. So the corporations can just run the show. And what was so interesting to me, and I had never really thought about this that much before, was that the same exact issue applies to freedom of speech. Is that the idea that we should live in a world where we just like, like Mark Zuckerberg, like throw our hands up and say, I don't know what to do about you know, all these lies on the internet. I I think that- Which,
1: just to point out too, the irony in the Mark Zuckerberg story, which we didn't get into in the interview, but everything going on there right now, where we're seeing the top 10 list of, you know, the most shared and promoted um, people and articles and websites on the site is all right-wing people, including yep. Ben Shapiro. The Daily Wire is even a, a fact-checking uh, website for them which is just absolutely gross ridiculous that they're even allowed to do that and then we see Peter Thiel who is the capital of or I mean the uh, CEO of Thiel Capital is on the board at Facebook who was taking calls with white nationalists and white nationalists openly saying oh he's our George Soros so cool. this idea that Mark Zuckerberg is just I'm out of it I'm not trying to do anything clearly you're leaning one way on this
0: well and and, and here's the thing like lest you be confused and think that like Mark Zuckerberg is truly taking the like, you know, libertarian approach. Uh, No, Mark Zuckerberg knows his audience. His audience is very conservative, very Republican. Twitter is not the same audience. Uh, Even Instagram is not the same. Facebook in particular is a very conservative platform with the type of people who are on Facebook and he knows that. So it's not, he's not some like benevolent libertarian.
1: And and conspiracy theories run more rampant on Facebook than the other major mainstream social media sites. I saw a stat that QAnon posts on Twitter have raised since March, 73%. Well, it's over 400% on Facebook. So clearly that shows you, you yep. know, the dichotomy yeah. of it is.
0: Yeah. Just because in case anyone listening doesn't know much about QAnon, um, I know we have kind of a a broader base of audience. You
1: don't have to keep, we say this every episode in case the audience. Do people know what QAnon is by now? If you haven't looked it up, then why are you even listening to us? Because we talk about it every goddamn
2: episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's being an ass. We, uh, (laughs) just real quick, QAnon is a far right conspiracy theory that thinks that Hillary Clinton and company are the deep state and they're part of a global cabal that's trying to, uh, uh, they're pedophiles and they're part of a sex trafficking operation with kids and they want to drink kids' blood. It's a thing like that uh decatur (laughs) you know just like you joke around about with your friends (laughs) it's one of those you know one of those funny funny things that's going to ruin our democracy but you know you know going back to the book though it's actually a great segue um there was a lot of stuff we didn't have a time to talk to uh mr Coase about but um he does talk what was really shocking to me and really upsetting is learning more about how certain parts of our government works that i didn't really fully understand. And so one of the stats that he threw out in his book is that the Senate, right? So you have the House of Representatives and you have the Senate. You need in our government, it's for any law to pass, you need three groups to agree. You need the House, you need the Senate, and you need the president to sign it. Now the president being able to veto anything is a debatable concept, but the but focusing on the Senate. So let's say you have the House of Representatives that wants to pass some progressive bill and then it gets to the Senate. Now what Happens is because the Senate is only giving two votes per, or I'm sorry, two senators per state. Then that's irrespective of population. And the way that works out is that the least populated states now have an equal voice to the most populated states. So literally, like Wyoming has equal votes in the Senate that California does, even though their populations are polar opposite. And um, the what the practical effect of that is is that the least populated 26 states ha- only hold 18% of the national population. And yet they get to control everything, right? There's only 50 states to 26. So, so the point is, just that a majority of the Senate represents only half uh, um, only 18% of the entire population of the country. So th- there's a, like, a, there's a lot of different ways to explain this statistic, but basically how it breaks down is your vote is almost six times more important. If you live in, Wyoming than in California as it pertains to your respective power in the Senate. So right. or
1: or I think I think that's a good thing to point out. And I think even like a better example to look at is somewhere, you know, look at a different state as Alabama or Arkansas, North Carolina, South Carolina, all these states where, you know, they have more power than than I guess the states that, that should. But the scary part is these are also states that are, are oppressing you know, black people's right to vote right. And, exactly. and, and things like that. So now what you have is not only is this smaller state controlling everything, but because it's smaller and they've been able to have the same party essentially for decades there they've been able to control more and not even get the democracy there and i don't want to live in a country where alabama wyoming north dakota nothing wrong with the listeners there who are actually listening to us i don't want those countries those states especially to have the control over what democracy is
0: well right i mean that's 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 how the argument is always going back and forth and i admit Actually, before reading this book, I was kind of a little agnostic on the question of the Senate because I thought like, well, I can see the argument that if we didn't have a Senate, then the people in rural states really wouldn't have all that meaningful of a voice because groups, you know, places like LA and New York, they're just so populated, they basically run the show. And then the needs and interests of rural people wouldn't actually be represented in the government. That was kind of the That was what I believed not even a week ago. Um, At least like I was agnostic to it. I was like, I can see this. I'm conflicted on it. But flip that on its head. This is what the book does. You know, flip that on its head. The issue here is that now what we decided to do instead is let just the rural people run everything. And now like LA and New York, their votes are literally, you know, your relative power in the government is six times less than someone in a rural state. And the problem that Decatur just mentioned is that in the rural states, They're not really progressive and they really don't care about your rights unless you look and sound like them a lot of the time. And so I don't know why I said sound, but whatever. Look and, you know. Oh, and you sound like this. (laughs) If you're a squeaker, as the gamers would say, you don't have rights. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know what a squeaker is. What's that? Oh, a squeaker is when you're in a video game. I I play games. I'm not any good. Don't, Don't ask me to stream unless you want a good laugh. But anyway, a squeaker is a guy who jumps on or a kid. It's a kid. So they just say, "Hey, everybody!" and then everyone's like, "Ah, muted," you know, like instantly. It's it's That's a running true. gag with the gamer community. Is like, don't don't jump on the mic until you're old enough to not sound like that. But anyway, <laughs> whatever. Right, it's, it's like kind of it's it's kind of they're bad people, dude. Gamers are. It's not a good crowd. Um, yeah. there's a lot of racism. Anyhow, this is a really interesting point. I didn't really uh get into it that much during the interview. So to make the comp to make the issue about hate speech more complicated and you know what what he was talking about in there is like speech free speech has never been absolute even the founding fathers didn't think it should be absolute and then when you look at situations like um you know nazis trying to do a rally i mean i think it's really easy for like progressives and leftists to be like fuck them like they don't get a rally like i don't want them to have a rally that's that's harmful speech that speech that is about harming other people it's just a really easy answer to be like i don't no, I don't agree with Nazis, you know. But here's where it gets more complicated because another example he gives in this book is if, you're, if your ultimate goal is, I actually don't care that much about free speech. What I really care about is racial equality. Let's just make that your goal. Well, there's a really terrible history of the South, the majority in the South using government to imprison and censor abolitionists during the 1800s. And that, of course, same law. We had the First Amendment back then, although as... Mr. Coase pointed out it didn't apply to the states at the time, but that's the risk. That's the, you know, that's the trade-off, right, that we're talking about is like these abolitionists were out there and they said the same thing about the abolitionists in the South that we're saying about the Nazis, although we're right and they were wrong. What they were saying was, is that we can't let the abolitionists be out here agitating because that is going to lead to property destruction and and harm and it's going to lead to violence and it's going to lead to insurrection and this is all dangerous and it's going to disrupt our communities just the same way in a lot of ways that we're talking about at what the nazi rallies are going to do
1: right and i mean i think i think though it's relevant to yeah exactly or if you want even a more modern example here is look what the right is starting to say about antifa and yeah if if we if we start applying these same rules then antifa by that same logic is going to lose their their freedom of speech and say what you want about, you know, Antifa. I don't think many people think it's the biggest problem who are listening to this podcast, but the right is terrified of Antifa and they're going to use anything they can to silence that. Even with that conversation that leaked yesterday coming out where someone leaked that in a conversation with William Barr, he had said to a bunch of judges, give the maximum sentences to these violent protesters And, you know, charge if you can charge them with overthrowing the U.S. government, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is obviously a very serious crime. And that's kind of, I think, a greater good that ACLU kind of extends their work to. Whereas, yeah, we have to represent some shitty people, but we're representing an idea, not necessarily a person.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, he gives just so you know, like, I actually really liked this book and I marked it up. Um, He also talks about, you know, they can't resell it. Well, not this one. Yeah, <laughs> I have to keep it now. But, um, but the other examples he gives, not just the abolitionists, he talks about people who are speaking up against apartheid in South Africa. He gives the example of uh, people protesting um, for Palestinians. And he specifically gives the example of uh, people who were saying that there was a mural of a Palestinian person. It was all symbolic and I won't bother to explain exactly what the mural was, but basically it was a pro-Palestine mural and basically people who said it was hate speech, right? Like pro-Zionists were saying this Palestinian mural is hate speech, right? And so that's like, that's the trade-off. Now, look, that doesn't mean we just throw our hands up and say, okay, well, then we have to tolerate all speech. The, the, really the concern is, is like, how do we respond to it? Because hate speech in my opinion is, It should be everyone's opinion is a terrible thing. But is it the right solution to involve our government in deciding what is hate speech and what isn't because right now I would not be very happy with Trump being the one to decide what constitutes hate speech and what doesn't him and his Department of Justice because quickly it will become as it already is antifa and other leftists will be the ones who are right now. Right. So now it's the perfect time to talk about this because even though we hold progressive values with the civil and social issues, what we, it doesn't mean that we necessarily want the government to be the ones to decide. It needs to be us.
1: And I think this is a super important issue for right now too, because you know, he, as he points to a lot of historical, uh, you know, examples of all this happening in in America and all that. And definitely the Palestinian thing is still an issue because there's now anti-BDS laws popping up everywhere. But, but I think too, now we're, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, But now we're in a state of of mass surveillance with the Patriot Act and and what does free speech mean under that? And that's a whole nother aspect because now, you can't protest in anonymity like you could before. So I think that that's another level of of all this which right you know talks about I think why it's important for especially like you said with with the Trump administration whoever is there. You know what I mean? Someone's going to be silenced. People have these complaints about Obama, right? So I mean, I don't want Biden deciding what speech is good and what speech is Biden bad. Biden can't <laughs> decide anything. I think we're good on that. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. He's he's not getting involved. But, you know, the idea well, what we did talk about with Mr. Coase, I think is a really good distinction. There's hate speech, and then there's like the content of speech. Right. But then there's the, the accuracy and truthfulness of speech, right? And that is right. another issue that I immediately know people are going to jump on me and say, well, who gets to decide what's true? Well, now that's a really um, interesting question, but I can just- Well, the answer is us. It's definitely us. It's this podcast. So what we're gonna propose is that we submit a law to Congress where the Super Politics podcast is the ultimate arbiters of truth. Yeah, and uh, and you can trust us because we're um, just we're the best. Right. And so,
1: no, I, I think that's a that's a really uh, important thing, though. Yeah, just and he breaks down really well. You know, the McCarthyism era of all yeah. this too, and just just this idea of. of calling everyone a communist and thank god that trump isn't as you know well put together and disciplined as mccarthy was because mccarthy didn't have that real power that trump does have yeah. and i'm not saying we should feel safe for that but because you know things are getting it's worse it's a matter but, of time people will explain right.
0: to him what he can do
1: but but i mean you know he points out that there was these journalists back then who believed you know, truth will prevail. And that's the, the best reason for free speech. But now we're kind of living in this post truth world, as you just said, Steve, and, and what is truth. So I think that it's a whole different uh, set of, you know, I guess, yeah, set of set of guidelines as to how no, you- as
0: it stands right now, as a society, we just don't even have like a general agreement like we used to on what is true and what isn't. Um, I'll say that like what you were just talking about, he, he jumps on it. It starts to pop off in the book on page 10, in my opinion. And this is where he breaks down, like, what is the kind of original, if you're like a free speech extremist, then usually you're operating on really three presumptions that none of them are really all that true. And one is that the, what you just said, which is that like the, and, and Mr. Coe said on the interview is that the better argument will prevail. Um, as long as they all at least have equal time to be heard or s- relatively right. equal time to be heard, that somehow the, equal, the best one will win out because people are generally logical, which is not accurate at all. There's been tons of research about how our brains work and we're illogical. Not us, but everyone else. And right. so um, the, the other thing is the presumption that everyone is equally capable of being heard. Well, that's obviously not true. Let me tell you right now, if we tried to throw this episode up on Facebook, um about 16 people will probably see it unless i pay facebook money and so there's i mean that's just the reality we live in now and then um they also that skeptics are interested in listening to your point even if you were equally capable of being heard joe biden has no problem being heard but who's listening to him well i'm not but but and most people and anyone skeptical of him isn't and because and that's just how we work he's not on my side he's not on my team and i'm not look We've already talked about Biden enough on this show, but the point is he, he sucks. But, um, but, the, but what I'm trying to illustrate is like, there's an example of a guy who's equally capable of being heard. He's making some good arguments about some issues and, and it's still no one on the right is even listening. So there's these really big presumptions we're making about how like completely deregulated speech is supposed to make us a better society. And, right. But we, we have to also recognize that speech is extremely powerful. Right, if like I love the movie *V for Vendetta*, and he talks about like as long as we have our voice, then we'll never be completely, you know, dominated or whatever. In that really great speech he makes in the movie, and which by the way is a really great anarchist film if you're into far left philosophy. um, That was written by. It's the film itself is a little bit straight away from anarchism, but the actual original graphic novel that it's based on was actually uh, written by an anarchist, and this was an anarchist. It's a really good. It's it's one of my favorite movies. Um, and but the favorite, my favorite is *Matrix* moving on. So, um, so, but this, I, these ideas. Mine's sleepless in Seattle. I'm playing <laughs> It was Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. We talked about this. Um, <laughs> so anyway, you know, basically my point is, is like, we, we now see that like, we have to balance this idea of free speech with, um, what is actually going to create this society where people are truly free. Right, because just saying that I don't want the government involved in my life, and that's what freedom is, or just saying that I don't want Facebook to filter any kind of message at all into let whoever has the most money speak—that that's freedom. I think most people would actually disagree with that as freedom. Once right. you talk about, do you feel as free as Microsoft to speak out about any issue, or can Microsoft just pay an unlimited amount well, to be heard? Well, I, I think, think it's a random corporation. That- but- and,
1: and that is, is actually, like, just kind of... This is a little different than what you're saying here, but I think that's such an important thing to point out and to ask people, like, how, how is your freedom right now? Would you judge your freedom of speech? Because most people aren't complaining about any of these states or anything that's stopping free speech. What they're complaining about is people who are giving their opinion on their free speech, which there's, yeah. there's that responsibility aspect of it. You know what I mean? And, right. like, really... And I think that's another thing that, that Ellis points out really uh, really carefully is that we shouldn't be concerned with what you and I are saying. Like that's going to happen regardless. But <laughs> these corporations are the ones that are allowing only right. a certain flow of them and influx of them. And they're the ones that are have the actual you know last say in free speech which is a terrifying thing which goes back to the whole Facebook thing of Mark Zuckerberg being able to control who hears what. Algorithms are the ultimate privilege right because you know no one's searching the you know specific disabled hashtag that someone might have. What they are searching is Ben Shapiro. If you lean with these Mm -hmm. conservative views now, for example, in an algorithm, are your views as important in your speech as important as Ben Shapiro? Well, actually now it just depends if you agree with him on everything. Because if you do, it's somewhat more important than the person who doesn't agree with you because now he's in that algorithm.
0: Yeah, and, and this is just really, I mean, we did talk about this quite a bit on the Intellectual Dark Web episode. So, you know, there's just like so many layered issues here. Right. And it all starts with, it starts at the, the concept of free speech. If we want to have a democracy, then we need to be able to talk to each other. And we're not, that's not happening right now. That is not what our country is. We can't, I mean, you're listening to this podcast, but I, if, if Mark Zuckerberg put out a rebuttal tomorrow, not that he would ever hear this, but you know, theoretically he'd have like 10 billion times the amount of listens or views than we would ever get. And, and that's not, I, and I'm not even saying that like, I'm, I'm bitter about that, although I am, but like, that's just like, we're not in a equal conversation. Cause I can tell you for the lucky people who are listening to this and are not Mark Zuckerberg, for example, like his whole take Yeah, thanks. His whole take on the First Amendment is wrong. He said like all the most of the civil rights movement um, in the '60s was based on the First Amendment, and that's just false. It was based on the right. Equal Protection Clause. It was based on the laws right. that were passed as a result of the Civil War. So that's the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments, right? That's the idea that we need to restructure now and put more regulation on the states and and on businesses so they stop discriminating against minorities. What is that? I mean, of course that's related to free speech, but if anything, the people talking about free speech are more interested in helping out racists. And in the '60s, it was is about stopping racists. So I don't even, like he's, that's my, that's a perfect example of like a person who has way too much power and way too much of a voice using it for yeah. really, really wacky things That is not like, right. not valuable to society at all for him to be able to just misinform you. So, well, um, and that's
1: that's where I think it's important that we figure out a plan on a, on a you know, federal or, or government level as to helping you know, outline for these corporations what they should be doing on, on some degree. You know, I, I I totally agree that we shouldn't be censoring online speech, but there should be some sort of maybe guidelines or something for these corporations because yeah. it, it is like, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg at the end of the day, I don't think gives a shit that much about politics. He cares whatever he's going to get more money in. And that's
0: yeah. probably the
1: the, you know- Well, because his-
0: that because his platform is largely conservative. He's just giving them what they want. Like, I don't, I agree. Right. I, I, I doubt he cares that much if a neoliberal or a conservative gets in office, like Joe Biden is not going to hurt his bottom line. Right. It's, it's, he's just not, you know, yeah. he's not, he's never going to do that. And, and, and that's why he's actually getting a lot of donations right now from Wall Street and well, Wall Street's a bad example, but a lot of corporations, you know, are donating to Joe Biden. I mean, I think there's actually a capitalist argument for Joe Biden, which is that like, he's better at hiding, how bad things are then then <laughs> oh absolutely yeah you know, definitely definitely so anyway um, you know that that's the first problem is if we can't even talk to each other then democracy is fundamentally flawed if only the people who already have power get to maintain their power through speech then we're we're fucked the the next problem is that even before a lot of these problems that we see with social media and the citizens United decision that allowed unlimited spending in our campaigns is we already had structural problems in place with the way our government works in the first place is like this whole idea, like we talked about with the Senate. And so like we have layer upon layer of like, no, okay, first you don't, we don't even get to talk to each other. Second, is even if we did get to talk to each other, the government isn't beholden to us because the way it's structured is that it gives right. a disproportionate, disproportionate amount of power to conservative people in rural states. And then three, you know, now we get into the Citizens United problem and the social media problem, layer that on top, which is that, um, you know, now the, the, the most powerful voices are heard, not only in the public sphere, but also in government. And they have an unlimited ability to to dictate who gets to be president. Yeah. I mean, most of our listeners are aware of this, but the problem that's why I think when he says free speech is dead, because he says the curious death of free speech is the name of his book. It's very accurate. Like we, any notion you have of a kind of free exchange of ideas or whatever the fuck you Ben Shapiro is trying to peddle peddle, piddle is, um, is uh, it's, it's a fucking flaw unless you're down for like, let's, try to create a society where more people are heard. And, and like you said, Decatur, which I think is actually perfect, which is that we need to create a society where, um, where the corporations don't just have like an unfettered right to drown out everyone else's voice. Right. You know what I mean? Both in in the public sphere and in politics.
1: Right. Which I think you could honestly find a lot of people on the right who would agree with that, mainly because they think that it's skewered there in the opposite direction right now, which would be just, you know, wrong. But but I do think you could get a lot of people on board with that because I do think no one thinks that there's no bias in, in these sort of things. And I don't even think that necessarily like we just said with Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or whoever the CEOs of these social media companies or any of this shit is, I don't think they're as partisan as just this A- these AI robots that do the work right. for them. And, and it's just, it's just, you know, coincidence, but either way it, need, it needs to be solved. I mean, I think, uh, what's the guy running against Pelosi? I always forget his name. You um, know?
0: Uh, Shahid.
1: Yeah, Shahid Batar. Um, and obviously, there's some other controversies there with him. But uh, a problem that happened months ago is just him talking about the Patriot Act on uh, on YouTube, for example. Two or three interviews got pulled off the internet right away. YouTube just took them off completely and that was because the ai algorithm that was set looking for hearing you know certain words seeing certain tags and and right out the out the bat it's being taken away and to me like that's a that's a huge problem of free speech because there's no context and you're already silencing but this idea that facebook or youtube or whoever can just let off like you know, sticks hammer 666, for example, uh, a YouTuber who complains about free speech all the time, who is just an all right, you know, shit posting troll for the, for the most right. part, you know, he's made his fortune on YouTube. And now he's starting to get demonetized for talking about ethno-nationalism and, and you know, being a Holocaust denier and, it, you know, this idea that we can just demonetize and everything's fine. You know, he thinks that's too far. And I think this is where the polarization comes from. He thinks that's too far. And his base says, well, this is atrocious. And we on the left say it's atrocious that, you know, YouTube's not doing anything. And he's still in the algorithm with a Ben Shapiro, with a Jordan Peterson, with a fucking Joe Rogan.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, this is a really complicated issue. It's not clear to me what the answer is. Like we said, you know, giving the getting the government involved, I think it's okay to have the government involved in truth versus not truth um and i'll explain that in a second and and i think i might be able to sell you on it a little bit Uh, i don't think it should be absolute but uh but on this idea of like what speech is good what political speech is like dangerous and hateful and harmful. I mean, the argument has gone both ways. No matter what side of the political aisle you're on, abolitionists were called hateful. Palestinian supporters or, you know, people in solidarity with Palestine, they're called hateful and dangerous and that it's gonna lead to violence and all this other stuff. So the same arguments are made on both sides. And that's what's tough is it's just whoever is in power that gets to decide which version of of that argument is right. So I am kind of still in favor, I mean, very much still in favor of the government keeping its hands off the content of political speech unless that content get borderlines on fraud. And once we start talking about fraud and deception, that's a totally different thing. And this is why I think I might be able to sell you on it a little bit, because we already do this in so many areas of life. We just, for some reason, in one of the most important areas of life don't, and that's in politics. So like I gave the example when we were talking in the interview is in a, in a private business dealing, or if I'm on Facebook doing false advertisement, trying to defraud people into giving me money for a product I don't even have, you know, or, Or or a product that isn't what I say it is, or if I'm a restaurant and I'm advertising a food, but this food actually is very harmful, you know, and it's and it's and it has toxins and it causes cancer, and I don't talk about that or I lie about it. You know, these are facts that are capable of verification. You know, we just have to kind of come to a place where we agree on, you know, well, who's 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 right and how do we know what's right? And that's a difficult issue or it it only now is because of social media has muddled what the truth is, but we have always had like a mechanism for that. We had like, you know, you have entities like the FCC and, and other, and other government agencies that can look into false advertisement. We also have courtrooms and courtrooms like for all of like for hundreds and hundreds of years have been our best way of sorting out fact from fiction. Now I'm a lawyer and I can tell you that courtrooms are actually a pretty awful way in some instances, to find out fact from fiction, and I'm all in favor of reforming how they work, but they um, sometimes do get to the right answer, and at least it's one thing we've kind of agreed on, is that at least we do have this neutral forum where we can go sort out fact from fiction. So it's not that we're incapable of, you know, regulating fraud in political discourse, which I think is a really important thing to do. We just it's just like right-wingers are acting like we're incapable of it. right
1: well well let me ask you this steve i mean as more of a, a theoretical uh for example like you know like courts do figure out you know truth in, in in some matter i don't think the average you know person in the population really looks to the courts though for any say on anything clearly because well no i'm talk just talking about, about like as an right, example right 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 but uh, yeah and i'm not saying for that i'm just saying for uh, like theoretically like do you think there should be sort of you know how um you know like the un or or geneva they have these you know like truth councils. should there just be some sort of truth council? for i mean that
0: sounds a lot i mean obviously my initial reaction is that sounds a lot like 1984 ministry of truth right like that sounds like a dystopian idea but i mean it's not far off from what i'm talking about in the sense that like the idea is this it would have to be politically detached and neutral somehow. And we'd have to put in structural places. Like I don't even believe that's the case for courts. A lot of the time, a lot of them, depending on what state you're in and how the courts are set up, there are political ramifications for decisions that, that actually not just affects the judges, but the juries and the lawyers and everybody. And right. so it's hard to create a system that's somehow isolated from the ramifications of their decision. I don't even know that that's possible, but there are ways we can structure some kind of government entity that gives a voice due process to everybody involved and that we can try to structure it in a way that is better at Seeking Truth than Zuckerberg's solution, which is, I'm just going to pretend like that's impossible. Well, right.
1: And I I don't necessarily, yeah, I see what you mean by the 1984. But I mean, like having some sort of like independent council commission for something, because I mean, the fact is that like, if, if there was even some sort of .gov to go to, and I get your point, like, you know, it gets a little authoritarian in some ways. But that being said, like, is it much different than what we have now with Facebook, I mean, it, it's just it's just corporate in well, this speech right now. I, I exactly, don't think it's yeah. that much different. And no, they no, do. No, no, I you're mean, right. You're
0: right. You're right. Right now, like 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 you know, we've mentioned now multiple times is that like doing nothing is not a neutral decision because what that does is replace the void of power, the vacuum of power, with corporations. But anyway, this is a really roundabout way of saying is that our government doesn't actually represent us, <laughs> and and we don't usually have the ability to speak in an equal way to corporations. Our country is completely run by corporations and uh, it, both in speech and in the political sphere. And that's kind of what I got out of this book in a way. Um, and right. we, I think it's okay for us to talk about changing the way that works. So we actually have real freedom and not just the illusion of freedom by deregulation.
1: Right, yeah, I think this book definitely pointed out well that there are a lot of free speech issues we have in this country and none of them are what we hear every day of what the free speech issues right. actually are. And I think that's the biggest takeaway from this. Uh, this. Agreed. Yeah, this book. And that's that's really, I guess, probably the best place for me to end it. Hey, um, Steve, real quick. Uh, let me clear up just a couple things here. Oh, okay. One, I've been just seeing since, since we're just, it's about to be out. So I just got to get this out of my system so people hear this soon. <laughs> There's a whole thing going around about Joe Biden rubbing dogs when they have boners What? Uh, i just want to point out where that started from wait this is a thing i haven't seen this yes (laughs) so people are saying like oh joe biden i believe it talked about uh you know how it's like a weird thing because he's rubbing dogs and they get boners but he doesn't know if he should stop because the dog's happy I just want to point out that was not Joe Biden who said that. That was Joe Budden on Joe Budden's podcast. And the Trumpers just ran with it. So
0: What? So yes. they're literally mis... Oh, this is the perfect so they're, example. So they're
1: characterizing a 40, a 42-year-old black man as Joe Biden and mixing it up.
0: Well, they don't know the difference. Um, <laughs> was there anything else to clear up? Because that was really shocking. The whole- oh, that was...
1: Yeah, that was, uh, that was number one. I just want to get that out because I saw a couple of the uh, <laughs> comrades under 1K hashtag also share that. I'm like, guys, no, this is from a rap podcast. You're getting this all mixed up. Uh,
0: <laughs> and he to, raises
1: a good question. Do you stop rubbing the dog? It's an important question. Yeah. And that's why and freedom of speech, right? There's so many avenues. We need to figure out the answers.
0: To,
1: <laughs> uh, that's one of them, I guess.
0: Should he uh, be free to talk about dog boners? It's up <laughs> to you. It's up to you. You decide, America. Like,
1: like and subscribe and let us know in the comments. <laughs> What's our email I wanted to say? So anyone could message us, email us, things super like that.
0: Superpoliticsshow at gmail.com. Now, remember, super politi- I'm going to put it in the description so you don't have to remember it. Right Never there. mind. Yeah. Okay. Like, where is it? It might be up here. We don't know. Is it in the corner? How do these work? Put it right here. You can put it
1: right there. Right over my lazy ass. You don't have to watch it all day.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Well, what else do you have, man? I mean, our country is screwed. We have to fix some of these things. We have to create a culture. We have to push back on this stupid shit about we can't even touch speech, even if it's a blatant lie. Yeah. Um, we, have to, we have to push back on the idea that free speech is the only civil right that matters because obviously there's other things that really matter, like equality and equal protection and racial yeah. justice and you know, economic humanity. justice, class justice, people's humanity, right? Like I care a lot about the fact that like I'm not free at work I mean, who is, right? I mean, I'm not no. complaining about my job. I love them. But what I am saying is that, like, in general, you, you're you not, like, you're someone's employee more or less, more often than not, and and so you're not free there. I mean, there's all these times where we're not free to speak. So what is this notion of free speech that we think we have, right? We're, we don't actually have it. I want it. I want a real free speech. I want real freedom. I don't want Yeah. This bullshit the right is trying to tell you
1: yeah don't ever let the right tell you this freedom of speech shit is partisan because they don't understand what speech actually is
0: agreed agreed all right um let's leave it at that thanks Great. thanks everybody thanks for
1: listening yeah